Are you glad to be here this morning? Good. All right, listen, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm coming clean with you this morning. I was preparing this week uh, for the message, continuing in the series, The Moral of the Story. We've been looking at the parables of Jesus. And some of the parables of Jesus have been easy. You know, they've been easy ones to kind of do. And um, earlier in the, before summer began, we were looking at this series, and we're, uh, we're considering which ones we wanted to do. And I was on the fence about this one today. I didn't want to pull the trigger on it. Um, I was tempted kind of to not pull the trigger, uh, mainly because of the culture we live in today. Because we like good news, don't we? Nobody likes a negative story. Everybody likes good, good, happy feeling stories. We want to sugarcoat stuff, but I've never been guilty of shying away from the truth of God's word, and that's good for your benefit because I want to be obedient in all things to teach his word, right? Whether it's, whether it's favorable or not, whether it's uh, welcome or not, I want to be honest and, and stand before God and preach his whole counsel. And so today's message, while I was on the fence about it, I got news right before the first service that a good friend of mine passed away, a young friend of mine passed away this week, and it shook me, and it just kind of reaffirmed the urgency of why this needs to be shared today. So if I seem discombobulated today, just give me, give me some grace, uh, but open your hearts today, what God wants us to hear. Open your hearts to the truth of his word, um, and, and, and don't take this as a negative, because there's some good news as well, but the good news is greater when we know the bad news first, Right? I said sometimes the good news is greater when you know the bad news first. When you know the bad news, you're like, man, give me some good news. And there is good news for those of us who place our faith in Christ Jesus. So Luke chapter 16, we're in this series called The Moral of the Story. We're looking at some of the parables of Christ. And we're landing the plane. Next week we'll finish this series. But through the summer we've been just taking a look at some of the parables that Jesus taught. And a parable is known as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. In these parables, Jesus is kind of revealing some things that we may not know um, on the surface, and he just tells these stories, these parables, to reveal a a deeper spiritual meaning. And so um, today we're looking at the rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And as you uh, prepare to read that, let me just ask you this. Have you heard the story of the young man who passed away, and on his um, tombstone he had etched these words? Consider, young man, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon shall be. So prepare, young man, to follow me. That sounds pretty profound, doesn't it? Well, somebody came along with a pocket knife, and they etched in these words to complete that. And it says, to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Let that sink in for just a moment. Scripture is very clear that this life that we're experiencing here and now is not all there is to it right? Um, At death, there are two real, very real, eternal realities. Um, Scripture teaches us that everybody who's ever lived and those who are living today will face one of two places after they die. They'll spend eternity in a place called heaven or in a place called hell. Now, I like to hear about heaven. I like to hear about the hope and the joy that we have in heaven. I don't like the hell stories, but I've learned that the hell story is very important because our culture today wants us to sugarcoat They don't want us to give them the negative news, but the reality is hell is real, um, and we should do everything we can to avoid going there uh, when this life is over. Amen? And if you have loved ones, you should do everything you can to to, to ensure that they don't go there for all of eternity. And so Jesus, in this parable, tells a story of the rich man and Lazarus, Um, and in this, he's going to do like he's been doing all along, these contrasts. You know, some of the parables that Jesus taught, um, he would say, you know, there's different kinds of soils. He's contrasting one soil to the other, or he's contrasting the one son to the other son, the prodigal son, or the two servants that were obedient to the one servant that wasn't, 
or the one that was given mercy, but now in contrast to that, he didn't show mercy. And so all of these parables, we just see this contrast and compare, and we see the same thing here in this story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, if you know the name Lazarus, I don't believe it's a name, but I believe it's more of a characterization because the name Lazarus means the one whom God helps. That's key. The one whom God helps. And so this parable is situated in chapter 16. And so why did Jesus share the parable? I think we need to know that first. And so um, just consider this for a moment. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them another parable about a shrewd manager. And the story is this manager was about to be fired by his boss man. And so he's like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. What am I going to do when I get fired? Who's going to let me come stay with them? He says, I'm too weak to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. And so he came up with a plan. And so his plan was to go to the people that owed his boss money. He says, quick, how much money do you owe my boss? And one guy says, hey, I owe owe him 100 gallons of oil. He says, quick, take your bill out and write 500 gallons of oil. And he goes to another guy, quick, how how much do you owe my, my boss? And he says... Oh, you know, I think it was 800 uh, bushels of wheat. He says, quick, take your bill out and write 600. And so he's shrewd in his business. It was, it's not right, but it says that the guy was amazed at his shrewdness. And then Jesus goes on to say, of that parable, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into eternal home. He goes on later to say, you cannot serve God and be a slave to money. No man can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one or love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And at this moment, some Pharisees that are in earshot of Jesus talking to his disciples, kind of like they interrupt Jesus. Because they love money, they love their wealth and their position. And it says that one of the Pharisees there, who dearly loved their money, heard all of this about the importance of using your money for, you know, for, for the benefit of others. It says he scoffed at him. Oh, no, you didn't. You just scoffed at Jesus? It said he derided him or he mocked or jeered um, Jesus. And so verse 15 says, Jesus said to him, to them, you like to appear righteous in public. I mean, you put on a show in public. In public, you appear to be righteous, but God knows your hearts. I mean, no, God knows beyond the surface. We can play the, I mean, I got all spit shine and polished up today, but God sees the heart. God looks beyond that. Amen. He says, you like to appear righteous in public, but God looks at the heart. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. He goes on to talk about how until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the message of the prophets were your guides, but now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is eager to get in. Jesus has come and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And these guys were so used to uh, the law of Moses and the law, and they, they were just entrenched Um, As Pharisees in the teachings, and they had a hard time accepting Jesus and this good news of the gospel, and Jesus is confronting that with this parable. And so in that, we'll look at some contrast between their life, um, their death, and then the afterlife, and then share what I believe um, are some important lessons that we can learn from this passage. I think it's clear also that Jesus, for the first time, opens the, the curtains into eternity and lets us get a glimpse of what life is like beyond death, right? We all experience life, and we all have many different walks of life. People are all over the map, but at death, it is all converged into two destinations. One, heaven, and the other one, hell. And every one of us will spend eternity in one of those two locations. So this is of utmost importance and significance today that we talk about this subject, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable and painful. Amen? So one more time, Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to receive whatever you want us to receive today. We trust you. 
Lord, be glorified in our time together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 16, or excuse me, verse 19, it says, Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, and who lived each day in luxury or sumptuous living. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, in the process of time, it says the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet, or some of your translations will say to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead, or Hades. It says there in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. It doesn't take a lot to figure out that Jesus is talking to the Pharisee, and that Pharisee represents the rich man in the parable. Let me make sure that you know up front that uh, this parable is not about someone who is rich and they go to hell because they're rich. The Bible tells us to be careful with the lure of money and riches because they can become our God. But if we remember, Abraham was the father of the Jewish race and he was extremely rich. So this is not a parable about a man that went to hell because he was rich. All right. Also, it's not a parable about a man who was poor and because he was poor, he went to heaven. It just was their conditions here on this earth. I believe that it's clearly a parable of one who put his trust in his riches, in his righteous outward appearance before man, and another one who trusted in God. And in fact, well, I said the name Lazarus is more of a characterization, one whom God helps. God helped him because he depended on God. This is simply a story of those who are in the faith who trust God and those who are not in the faith who do not trust God. And so the Pharisees, there was a common understanding and belief back then that if you were rich, that was a sign of God's favor and his blessings, and that you were considered righteous if you were rich, right? You look at somebody like, man, they're loaded. They must be blessed immensely by God. And there's a danger today in some of our church cultures with the health, wealth, and prosperity message that says the same thing, that God wants you all to be rich. God wants you all to be prosperous. And somehow, sometimes, if we're not careful, we can equate that with righteousness. Hey, I'm right with God because obviously he's blessing me. Another thing that they believed that was wrong was if somebody was poor, it was because they were cursed by God. And we know that this is absolutely not the case here. And so Jesus addresses this man who was self-justifying in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's look at some of the comparisons. In life, verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen. 
In those days, purple was an expensive color. It was imported. They would dye it. It it took a lot of money to do that. And so Jesus wants us to see the extravagant dress of this rich man. And so if you think about the Pharisees, this would be kind of equivalent to the the high priest who would dress up really in beautiful garments. And he's like, there's a rich man who was very bougie, to use Shane's term today. And he was loaded, and he wanted you to know that he was loaded. He wore purple so everybody could see it and fine linen. And it goes on to say um, that he lived each day in luxury or sumptuously. Um, Some have said that just means he was flaunting it. He wanted people to see that he was rich. That's from one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of that, the contrast, it says, At his gate lay a poor man, man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. It says, as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, um, I would remind you that that just shows that the rich man had plenty and he had an overabundance of food and the scraps would be what was left over were thrown to the dogs and it says Lazarus longed to get just the dog food, right? It says he longed to get the scraps that would fall from the tables. It says the dogs would come and lick his open sores. And so you see this huge contrast between a rich man who is bougie, who's living it up, who wants everybody to know it, and on the other end of the spectrum, this poor man covered in sores, hungry. A huge, great contrast, right? And so from their perspective, the Pharisee tracking with his story might say, well, it's because the rich man is blessed by God and the, the poor man, Lazarus, is obviously cursed by God, right? Verse 22, it says, finally the poor man died It doesn't say anything about a funeral. It just simply says he was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet or to Abraham's bosom. As a Pharisee, this is something that they would all long to one day be able to participate in is the banquet with Father Abraham, right? The, The father of the whole Jewish race. Like we all long to one day be in the presence of Abraham the forefather of it all and and be at a banquet in his presence. And Jesus just said the poor man was there. In Abraham's bosom, that close proximity with Abraham. It says the rich man also died and he was buried. I I imagine he had a pretty amazing burial compared to the poor man. And people were there to say all kinds of great things about the man who had passed on. But the next verse, there's the life, the death, and then the afterlife. It says, and he went to the place of the dead which is the Greek word Hades. And some have said, no, that's not the place of the dead. That's not hell. That's just the place where everybody temporarily goes while they're waiting the final judgment. Everybody's just all there together. The reason I don't agree with that and the reason Jesus uses this word several other times to talk about hell is because the very next verse, it says, there in torment he saw Abraham. So it says the poor man dies and he's carried to Abraham's bosom, the, the realm of righteousness, if you will. And the rich man dies, and it says he opens his eyes, and he finds himself in Hades. And it says, in torment, he saw Abraham in a far distance with Lazarus at his side. Now, I can imagine the Pharisee listening to this story being kind of offended that, how could you say that? We're we're Abraham's seed. We're Jews, and he's Father Abraham, chosen people, you know, through us. You know, you're going to be blessed. We'll all be blessed through Abraham. And in this story, he pictures the rich man in hell. And so this man, who was not merciful early on to Lazarus, is now begging for mercy. I think it's interesting that his attitude has not changed. So he's, he's in hell, and he's not changed because he still sees Lazarus as somebody to serve him. And so he says, hey, Father Abraham, do me a favor and have, have Lazarus. You know that guy that laid at my gate? Have Lazarus come and dip the finger, his finger in water and touch my tongue because I'm in anguish in these flames. Abraham responds to him and says, son, remember... 
that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted. You were bougie, man. You had all the, the money, and you let everybody know that. You had it all, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is being comforted, and you are in anguish. So again, we see a huge contrast in the afterlife. The man who had it all in life now has nothing, is begging for mercy. The man who had nothing in life now in the afterlife is being comforted in the presence of Abraham or in Abraham's bosom or the realm of the righteous. A pretty extreme contrast, would you say? He's going to say, besides that, there's a great chasm separating us. No one cross over it. From here to there, from there to here, there's this great gulf, this divide. It's impossible there. So in verse 27, he says he appeals again to Abraham. And he says, hey, if it's too late for me, and, and this is my, you know, this is what I'm going to experience for eternity, at least let Lazarus again, the servant, you know, Lazarus, let him go and warn my brothers because I don't want them to end up in this place too. To which Abraham responds, they have the scriptures, they have Moses and the prophets, let them read those. And they're like, no, no, no. As a Pharisee, they, uh, they, they held the teaching and the law of Moses and the prophets to a high, high standard. That was the greatest authority you could have, right? In this moment, in this parable, it says the rich man who represents the Pharisee says, no, 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 that's not enough. We need more. They're not going to believe the scriptures, so send somebody back from the dead. If, if, if that happens, that'll get their attention. I would say that sometimes we fall into that trap. I did early on in my faith. I remember asking God for miracles all the time just because I was weak in my faith. And I don't know if I believed or trust, but God, if you just let a star fall from the sky right now, man, I would. And it, doesn't, it didn't happen. <laughs> As I've grown in my faith, I'm like, God, don't have to show me anything. His word has been very clear, and he does not change. He's faithful. His promises are yes and amen. Amen? And so... He says, man, the, the word's not enough to convince them, so send Lazarus from the dead because if he goes back from the dead, if we can't go to each other, maybe he can go there and warn them to stay away from this place that they won't have to be here. Abraham says they won't listen. If they didn't listen to the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And so here's some things that we can learn. As I said, Jesus kind of opens the curtains and lets us reveal or see um, what might be on, beyond the grave, be beyond the grave and the afterlife. Um, and so the first thing we need to know is heaven and hell are real prepared places. I think you could pull every Christian on the planet and say, do you believe in heaven? Most of them say, yep, and I'm hoping in it, aren't you? To know one day when this life is over to spend eternity with him in heaven. And some people get like, is it going to get boring? Like we're eating angel food cake all the time, strumming our harps and singing kumbaya or something. I don't know. What are we going to be doing? I don't know. But the Bible says no eye has seen, no ears heard, neither can heart enter the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. I just know it's going to be awesome. And I believe in it, right? Jesus in John chapter 14, what does he say? He says, in my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Heaven is a prepared place. He says, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you'll be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says, well, how can we know the way? He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Heaven is a prepared place, and we accept that. But in our culture today, it seems not, it's not very palatable to talk about hell because it's kind of scary, right? We don't want to scare people into heaven. We don't want to. Make people go away from church discouraged or like, man, I went to hear an encouraging message today and all they did was talk about hell and it was kind of a downer. But church, we need to be talking about it because it's also a reality. It's also a prepared place. 
In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus in his parable of the sheep and the goats, it's the judgment of the end times. He says he'll separate them from the left and the right. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed ones, to the everlasting fire, to hell, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is also a prepared place, very real. Amen? So hell is a place of physical suffering, relational suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, and eternal suffering suffering. And so I would think that we should do everything we can to avoid that place. Amen. The good news is we know that it was not prepared for us, but it's prepared for the devil and his angels. We know that God's word says that he's willing that none should perish. Right? We sing the song, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him, right, to put your trust in would not perish. That is the place of hell and eternal torment. They wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. That's good news, right? And so we know that heaven and hell are both real prepared places. Jesus spoke of hell often, and so we have to believe, whether we don't want to or not, I mean, heaven is real, hell is also real, and there will be many who didn't believe in the existence of hell that will spend eternity there. Another thing that we need to see in this passage, I think that it indicates an awareness in the afterlife that this rich man was aware of his surroundings and his conscious torment. You ever considered that? You know, some people said just the being in hell for all of eternity would be so much to bear that God would have to wipe our, our memories clean because it would be unbearable to see family and loved ones or to see opportunities that we had and we passed over and all that stuff. Jesus gives us a glimpse here in this story that um, it, there's an awareness in the afterlife because it says that the rich man calls for Lazarus to help. He remembers Lazarus, the man that was at his gate. Hey, send Lazarus to serve me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue. Send Lazarus to tell my, my family he remembered. Abraham said, son, remember to call to memory like how it was for you in life? Remember how you had it? He called him son because he... It was a Jewish person, and the Abraham faith is like, Father Abraham, Jewish people, sons. I believe it was a very compassionate response. Son, remember how you had it on the earth and how Lazarus had it, and now it's been flip-flopped around. So this man is aware of his surroundings, and he's conscious of his torment. He says, I'm in torment here. I, I'm, on, I'm in this anguish in these flames. Again, he says, um, this place of torment, I believe he was very aware I don't know about you, but that's just so sobering to consider the fact that there could be people for all of eternity in hell and always have that memory playing over in their head of the opportunities that the gospel was presented to them, and they said, no, thank you. That's scary to me. That that memory could be just called back up. It's like, no, no, no. In fact, you heard the gospel 15 times in your life, and let me show you each one of them. And every time, be reminded of the opportunities that we had. And here's the thing. God loves us enough to give us that choice. Do you hear me, church? He's not going to make us go to heaven. He says, hey, I love you enough that I'm going to give you the free will to choose whether you will accept or not accept my offer of salvation. And if you are willing to hop on the, the train of unbelief, you better be prepared to ride it to its final destination. Because if you choose in this life to have nothing to do with God, he will grant that request for all of eternity. It's a pretty serious choice to make to reject such a great gift as the gospel is. Amen? To know that there's an awareness of that, whew, 
Notice his misery. He knew he was in torment. His memory. And, and, and he's even mission-minded in hell. Probably for the first time in his life. Hey, if it's too late for me, then send him to my brothers. I don't want them to be here. Abraham responds. <clears throat> Besides, there's this great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Here's another one. Death permanently fixes everyone's destiny. That's why I always say the most important decision that we can make in this life is what do we do with the gospel. You probably get tired of hearing it. I don't care because it's the most important decision you make in this life. Because the decision you make today carries on into eternity. And you say, I will reject the gospel. Guess what? The consequence of rejecting such a great faith and gospel and the good news of the gospel is eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And here's the thing. He's willing that none should perish. It's not his desire to send anyone there. But he loves you enough that if you don't want to be with him, he'll let you have that for all eternity. So death permanently fixes everyone's destiny. Once we die, it's that. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And at that moment, it'll be too late. Wait, 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 time out, God. I, was, I wasn't paying attention. Give me another chance. Give me another chance, and it'll be too late. It's permanently fixed in that moment, all of eternity. Lastly, I would say this, and I think this is also very important, is <clears throat> Scripture is sufficient. There's, a, there's this thing going around today that minimizes Scripture. It's like, you know, Scripture's good, but it's just not complete, and we need extra supernatural or emotional or sensationalism and all that stuff. And, and I'm here to tell you right now that everything we need to know about our condition, our sin condition, and the hope that we have in the gospel is found in the, the Word of God. It is sufficient. I don't need anything else. Amen. You don't need anything else. You just open the Bible and you go, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Right? You read the Old Testament, it points to our need for a Savior, and Jesus is the answer to that, right? And you read the Gospels, and you see our condition of sin and how sin separates us from Him, and it's like that we are all, the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything is revealed in His Scriptures. Scripture is sufficient. And that's what Abraham told the rich man. Hey, they've got Moses and the prophets. That's the final authority for you guys. Let them read that. Jesus is affirming the sufficiency of Scripture even in the, the writings of Moses. And he's saying, hey, read, read, because he's going to learn. You read Moses, they're going to learn. They're going to get it. They're going to see. So scripture is sufficient. Church, scripture is sufficient for us as well. And so everyone within earshot today, standing before God on judgment day, will have no excuse because you heard your pastor say the importance of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Now here's, you know, sometimes the fear is, I don't want to offend somebody. But I'd much rather offend you today than to offend God by, by withholding this very important truth from you. Amen? So the beautiful thing is God doesn't want us. He doesn't want anybody to go there. But he loves us enough that he'll give us that choice. And so scripture is sufficient. So what is the, the moral of the story? One of the things I pull from this is today's reality does not guarantee the same in eternity. So the rich man was rich. They thought that being rich was a sign of righteousness. Rich does not equal righteousness. Amen? Religion does not equal righteousness. This man was a Jew and Father Abraham. He's connected, right? Like, this is my family. Father Abraham, have mercy. Religion does not equal righteousness either. You can <clears throat> be born in the church. You could faithfully attend the church. <clears throat> you can quote verses. I met a guy one time that said, I've memorized the whole gospel of John. I'm like, hmm, really? 
He goes, I can quote it to you. I was like, please don't. It's going to take too long. But I'm like, that's impressive. And you could quote the whole Bible, frontwards and backwards, backwards and frontwards. Know every song in the church. I don't need the lyrics. I just know them. You could die and be buried under the pulpit in the church and without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, spend eternity in hell. Do you feel the weight of that? So when we try to justify ourselves to man, we like get this outward righteous um, presentation. He says, God's the one that's looking at the heart. And there will be many people on that day that will be full and think, hey, man, I was went to church. I served. And he says in Matthew 7, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So today's reality is not guaranteed the same in eternity. Just because we go to church doesn't mean that we're righteous in God's sight. Have you placed your faith in him? Because he said, now God has showed us a way to be made right with him without keeping the law. It is by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. The most important thing we can do is place our faith and our trust and our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lazarus was called Lazarus because he was the one whom God helps. Lazarus relied on. He depended on him. And he found himself at Abraham's bosom or in the abode of righteousness because of his faith and his dependence upon God. We see the Pharisee who had the law, who knew the law, who had the heritage, the religion, but didn't put it into practice, who missed out. And so we see this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And so by way of application, I would say this, as I said already, where do you stand when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? One day, you, you won't be standing next to your friends. You won't be, there will be no peer pressure. It'll be you and God. And we stand before him and give an account this life. He says, hey, you had 50-something years. You had 80 years. You had 30 years, whatever it is, on life. And you heard the gospel. What did you do with my son? What did you do with the gospel? And in that moment, it doesn't matter who's around us, and we will either be condemned for all eternity because we rejected it or we'll be welcomed into heaven because we accepted and believed the gospel. So my hope is that every person in this room today is like, man, I know, I believe and I trust in the gospel and alone in the gospel. Not my, my works, because guess what? On my best day, I was having a really good day this morning. I woke up early, 3 a.m. I'm like, God, this is a good day. And so far, I've not screwed up. It's been amazing. But in a second, I'm going to put my feet on the floor and get out of this bed. And it's going to be all uphill from there, right? The reality is we all fall short, don't we? On my best day, it's not good enough. That's why we need the gospel. But that's why I said the, the good news is greater news because we got to know the bad news first. There's good news, and the good news is it's totally avoidable. This place of hell is totally avoidable for whosoever. Say whosoever. Who does that mean? I, whosoever, duh. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love that. How powerful the gospel is. Have you placed your faith in the gospel? If you've not, then please hear me say today, today is the day of salvation. Life is brief, right? James says it's a puff of smoke. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, right? Because life is so fragile. And just like that, it's gone. Like my friend that I heard about this morning, too young and gone. And because of that, I'd say the most important decision we can make is to place our faith in the gospel. All right? So I hope everyone here has nailed that down in their life and they know where they stand. <clears throat> Secondly to that, I would say that the fruit 
is what kind of reveals the Pharisee was not in a right relationship with God because he had the law. He had all the commands and the prophets telling him how to treat other people and his lack of showing mercy and compassion. Some people have preached this sermon and said that's what sent him to hell. Was a lie. It was a sin of omission that he didn't show mercy to those. And I don't think that's it at all. I think it's he didn't trust he didn't believe, and as a result of that, it was evident in his life how he treated other people. So to us, I think there's a lesson in that as well, as if we place our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know from what he has pulled us from, imminent danger with eternity in hell, he saved us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How then should we live? Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercies, to live your life worthy of the calling that you've been called to. Amen? So to, to have his heart. Like God is compassionate with those that are hurting and need. And so I should also be compassionate with those who, who are hurting and or who are in, in need. And so let that be a reminder to us as a church. Is does, our, does our walk, does our actions, does our response to the people around us verify and validate that we are his and that he has our hearts? I don't know how God speaks to you this day on this, um, but I, I hope that each one of us will just take a, a moment to think about that and to consider. I heard someone say the other day, if every Christian could spend one minute in hell, if it were possible that we could just spend one minute in hell to experience what it must be like, what kind of an impact would it have on us when we came back? A sense of urgency for those in our families, a sense of urgency for us in our walk with Christ. I think it would have a radical impact on our lives, wouldn't you? Father, I ask that you would please... In a season where our culture doesn't want to hear the bad news, we just want to hear the sugar-coated, fun stuff that makes us feel good. Lord, we need to hear, Lord, that hell is a reality. Lord, not to scare people or to discourage them, but just to wake them up and help them to realize that life is short and we're not guaranteed another breath, another day, that one day we will all pass from this life and we'll be... Um, Lord, into eternity, and, and based on what we do with the gospel today, we'll determine where we spend all of eternity. And my prayer is today that every person in this room has placed their faith in you and their trust in you for salvation. And I pray that as a result of that, Lord, you just put a, a heart in us that wants to feel the same sense of urgency um, that you felt for us, for other people around us, for our family, for our coworkers that we would be compassionate as you are compassionate and merciful as you are merciful, or that the evidence of our actions, our speech, our conduct, the way we conduct business, uh, without even opening our mouths, screams that we are yours. Lord, we know that we live in a broken and fallen world, and Lord, this world needs you like never before. And so, God, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts today. If there's someone here today that has not placed their faith in you, I pray that today would be the day they trust you. Lord, that they repent of their sins and turn to you as this man acknowledged that that was where he went wrong when he said his brothers perhaps would repent and turn to you. Lord, would we not miss the opportunity that you've presented to us today? And Lord, all this is for your glory. Lord, that one day we can stand in heaven and we can celebrate and say this was nothing to do with my goodness, my good works, the law, or anything else I was able to achieve, but it's only by your grace that we are saved and we enjoy heaven for all eternity. God, would you please make that real in our hearts and just, Lord, speak to us however you may want to speak to us today. We humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.